is this people being sort of snowflakes and sensitive? Is this a, a way of just sort of putting a charge back at you? Where is this coming from, this whole bullying thing? You know, you're a bully. That's, people, they've said this, has been said. No, but again, when if someone comes and says it, it's worth just cross-referencing with other people in the city. We, you know, pulling pulling the city together in a way that that we have since I've been elected as mayor would not be possible if we, uh, in terms of opening up decision making to our city partners, if we approached it in a way that wasn't okay. The, the youth work I've been involved in over the years, the city leadership program, I work in the voluntary sector. You know, I've got enough of a track record in the city. It's not too hard to go out and ask people if they think that this is the truth. Some of that is political gaming. Some of it is people who are sensitive when they're asked a question back. Welcome to Bristol Unpacked Local Election Special 2021. On May the 6th, Bristol will be going to the polls to elect people to run our city. The Bristol Mayor, all 70 local councillors, a police and crime commissioner and the West of England Mayor. I will be sitting down with the main candidates for Bristol Mayor, helping you decide who to lend your vote to in the race for City Hall. My conversations will be informed by cable readers who have contributed key topics and questions to our Citizens Agenda project. My approach is to be free-flowing, have a conversation to find out who they are, what they say they will do, and the political beliefs that guide them. Think less Andrew Neil, maybe a bit more Louis Farouk. I'll have a bit of fun with them along the way, find out a bit about them, and challenge them when necessary. Here goes. In this week's election special of Bristol Unpacked, it's the Labour candidate and current mayor, Marvin Rees. We talk about his successes, his failures and what he wants to do to build on and win this election. Are you filming this one for your documentary? I don't don't film my own documentaries, Neil. (laughs) David Olasoga's making a documentary about you, isn't he? Yeah, but he's filming that. Are they filming now? Are they filming now? No, they finished. Okay, great, great. Right, so we get you on last of all the main party candidates because essentially you've got a kind of record to defend, but I guess a record to attack. So you've lost, you've won, and now you're defending your title. Bristol's had loads of stuff that happened, has it? Colston, Greta, protest, COVID. It's been quite a ride. Uh, do you want a rest? Well, we all want a rest every now and again. <laughs> <laughs> the, the the point is to make sure you're you're managing your you managing your life. So, yeah. you know, I, it's, it's an honour to be involved in the city's leadership. Um, it's an honour to work with the people we've worked with. And as I point out, we can take for granted that when I ran in 2012, even when I ran in 2016, the mayor of Bristol didn't look like people like me and didn't come from backgrounds like mine. And now the mayor does. Sure. It's been an amazing honour and uh, we've had some amazing partnerships, tackling child hunger, period poverty, I've just come from St. George's Park, actually, with one of the people living in the new Zed pods up there. And he just said it's, you know, it's changed young people's lives. So that's been amazing. Has it, has it changed you as a person? As you say, you've, you are somebody who sort of comes from non-traditional kind of background in terms of political leadership in Bristol. So has it, has it changed you? that In essence, you're kind of now part of the establishment? It hasn't changed. Well, first off, I think that, I mean, not to challenge you, but... If the difference between who you are and becoming a member of the British establishment is simply getting elected or getting a little bit of money, you're in a very privileged position in life. It takes a lot more than getting elected to a, a local government leader to be uh, become a member of the British establishment. That's just a, you know, well, all right, a political establishment in Bristol. Then you know what you are the mayor. You know you're on decent well, what money. Is the, tell me what, a, the, what is the political establishment, Neil? This is my first callback to you because I know what you like to ask questions to journalists. You're not a journalist anymore. I'm not here to answer your questions. You're here to answer mine. Um, yeah, I mean, establishment in the sense of, you know, you are a mayor. I'm interested genuinely, I'm not trying to trip you up, how that no, feels no. How that feels coming from where you come from. We come from similar backgrounds and, you know, to be in that position, I don't know. I've never been in it. Does it, does it change you? Do you feel awkward to begin with? Are you more comfortable with it now? No, well, no. I mean, first off, the reason I asked that, I am obviously, I, you know, we we chatted for a long time. I'll be provocative because I think some of these words like establishment and that are thrown around without people really even thinking about them, just like class is, is thrown around. But um, clearly you develop and you change. Yeah, well, no, so I wouldn't use the word change. I use the word develop. Yeah. Certainly when I was, when I was running, I was very conscious or, or I was very sensitive to the 
my sense that people didn't think that the mayor would look like me. The first hustings I went to was over at a law firm with a room of property developers. And as I was on stage, you know, six foot shaved head black guy, I thought, no one in this room thinks I look like the mayor. <laughs> you know? yeah. Or maybe that was my own internal internalization of that, um, of my, my historical experience of the city. But um, as I was talking to some young people the other day, I said, now the mayor looks like you. You know, now the mayor comes from backgrounds like yours. Do you think people underestimate that in, in Bristol? You know, I asked that to provoke a response because I know, you know, you will say that there are degrees of what establishment is. And you've spoken in the past about people robbing you of your background, that somehow that ceases to be part of who you are now. But do people react and respond to you differently now than they did before you were mayor? Um, well, it depends on what we mean by people. There's so many of these things, I frustrate my children on that. They ask me a question and I often say, well, that depends, right? Mm. This stuff does matter. I mean, I actually think it's quite interesting. It's a reflection I've had recently that in a city that is so full of graduates and, and would, uh, I guess, as a whole, we would consider ourselves quite politically literate. Yeah. Our conversation on, on race and class is really undeveloped. So we're aware of it, but we, we don't know how to talk about it. In fact, I mean, if you go on the Elitist Britain report by the Sutton Trust, you know, it's like overwhelmingly political leadership is held by people who go to independent schools. Mm-hmm. 54% of our MPs and so forth, 7% of the population. We are still yeah, one of the... Game as well, was it the Milburn report, didn't it? Covered yeah, the, the Milburn report. So, you know, we are one of the most socially immobile countries in the OECD. Yeah. What we've had over the last five years that we can easily forget just how big a change it is. We have now the most inclusive and diverse political leadership the city's ever known. Ten people. And, and in fairness to that, yeah, sorry to jump in, when I've asked questions to other candidates about what kind of good things you've done, they've all acknowledged actually that fact that the leadership in the city is visibly different than it probably ever has been. Yeah, and what I would hope is that we'd understand just how significant that is. So in our cabinet, five women five men and then there's myself there's asha first rasta cabinet member in europe and then there's afsal uh pakistani man so that but that i think the danger is one is that that goes unappreciated it's just what it actually means not just for the way we make decisions and how we understand the world but what it means for the the population and their sense of connectedness to uh political leadership but sometimes that stuff can by people who don't actually understand the importance of representation be cast aside as a nice to have like it's just an equalities project or a diversity program decorative diversity some yeah well or, yeah or they underestimate the political significance of that that shift so do you welcome your you know i don't know like the, the green party which at the moment are second with with the bookies you know the obvious critique over the years was that they are pretty middle class pretty white that they now have a sprinkling of people from black and ethnic minorities coming forward you've also got people like Cleo Lake I know Lawrence Hill they have some Somali councillors standing presumably the broadening of of all types of faces in all political parties is a positive for years I've been trying to recruit people into politics even before I was a mayor Afsal, Afsal Shah shared the story the other day of an event I ran in 2013 at Eastern Community Centre and I wasn't a candidate I wasn't elected at the time, but I just ran an event for some reason. You know, we had about 30 people there and I was saying to people, look, we need people from our communities to to come forward for election. The first thing is to get involved. The second point is to talk about which banner you run under, which party you, you run with, but just get involved in the first instance. Interestingly, I had a lot of pushback in that event. A lot of people saying, no, it's pointless. The political system can't work for us. It's, they never listened to us in the past. I'll never do it again. But interestingly, Afsal said, because I stood me, you know, I stood my ground, not arguing, but just continue to make the case. Look, yeah, it's not a perfect political system. There are no perfect political parties, but we've got to get involved. Then he stood and he became the councillor for Easton. Yeah. yeah. So get involved. Yeah. And then we'll talk about the, the colours afterwards. Where I guess Labour traditionally have been seen as the party for minority groups. Is that slightly shifting and changing now? And I guess whilst that may be not necessarily negative for Labour, but maybe a bit challenging for the kind of society and political engagement in general, that has to be a good thing, surely? Well, hold on. I don't want you to take me down some rabbit hole and make it sound like I just think that, you know, if you've got black and brown skin, that suddenly qualifies you for, you know, unqualified support as a as a politician. 
Yeah. Well, I want I want diversity in politics, and I always um, advocate for that. Yeah. But it, again, it's not just a question of racist about background. So mm-hmm. you know, you can actually bring ethnic diversity into public leadership, but it all went to the same private boarding school. You know, yeah. that doesn't necessarily bring you a diversity of thought, does it? And it's the diversity of thought and world experience and world understanding that you need. So, so, so on that then, because there are some people in the black community that would regale against the thought of ever voting conservative, let alone becoming a, a conservative councillor or MP or, or Metro Met or whatever, um, for a number of reasons, because of the historical context of the party. So you're saying that's kind of OK, but it's framed more by what someone's actual class background is. No, or education, education is because obviously there's been you know Boris's cabinet at the moment is one of the most diverse. Arguably, it's more diverse than the shadow cabinet, isn't it? Well, I don't know. I mean, because it, it depends on if they all went to the same schools, and well, that's I what guess, I mean. So it's, so it isn't about it's race; it's about class and education as much as it is about, about yeah. It, well, it's an interplay between the two, but clearly, also people have to have policies. So it's no point getting someone from my background who's going to you know you know, entrench austerity, you know, come up with a report that says that institutional racism isn't real, you know, have an approach that denies social immobility and denies inherited privilege. I guess where this sort of leads is there are suggestions in some quarters that, and we've seen this with the voters, you know, in the last sort of several general elections, is that Labour have perhaps taken the working class, and dare I even say that the, the black vote, or, or ethnic minority vote for granted? How, how would you respond to that? Um, I think charges like that can 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 always be made, and and probably in some places that you know there's a there's where people need to put their hands up uh, to it. Um, but at the same time, I think it's important to realise that um, it, those of us on the progressive side of politics are pushing water uphill. You know, the world is not shaped by politicians alone. There's all these invisible forces that go on in the way the economy works and that that actually drive us towards greater inequality. But my other point about that is, well, where does that lead you, right? Historically, the analysis of uh, my own, as a young person, my political analysis led me to a point of cynicism where I said I would never get involved in politics because it doesn't serve people and it was corrupting and could not be saved. But then Simon Woolley from Operation Black Vote said to me, well, Marvin, you've you got a great analysis on why the world is rubbish, but what are you actually going to do about it? That's your big challenge, isn't it? And criticism to a lot of campaigners and protesters in the city is that, I've heard you say a lot of time, it's about shouting from the sidelines and, and not jumping on the field of play. Do you feel that change can only take place within the system? No, no. It's a complementary relationship. So what I've referred to is touchline profits, Neil. I mean, you were yeah. a sportsman. I played some sport, right? You know, I, I remember as a kid watching boxing and you got you got a couple of people in the ring. It's round nine and people are saying, come on, put some effort in. And then you get in the ring for the first time. And after two minutes, you realise, actually, it's pretty hard work, right? Mm. I can only do a round. And some, people can't, some people couldn't do a round and a half. And that is that is that shot from the touchlines. So it's just an appreciation of people in different spaces. And, and I think my 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 challenge has been that some of the commentary on on politics has, has been about the status of the, the commentator more than it is about getting to good things. So if you look at the relationship between Malcolm X and Martin Luther King, which is one yeah, I quote, yeah. you know, the, the point where Malcolm X meets Coretta Scott King. It says, I don't hate your husband, but they know if they don't deal with him, they've got to deal with me. Deal with Robert Malcolm, yeah. I love that self-realisation that actually sometimes activism is there to create an environment in which more radical politics is possible, in a yeah. place where radical politics is sometimes not possible. So Lyndon Johnson, King goes to Lyndon Johnson and says, we need a Voting Rights Act. Civil Rights Act isn't enough. Lyndon Johnson says, I have no more political capital. I cannot get it through Congress. King organises the Selma Bridge March. Bang, TV cameras there, conflict. Now you've got the political space to do it. So it's yeah. just about having an appreciation of people in different positions. So it's a strategy that can work from the outside and inside. And I think what's interesting for me is I have seen, I don't want to labour this too much because I want to get on to talking a little bit about policy stuff, but uh, I, I, I've been in the city long enough to see that switch and change. When in effect, that core team that you do have around you were probably people that worked in that community activist field and are now in power. And by definition, I'm, I'm doing speech marks with my hands are the establishment. And that must feel a bit different. 
I feel, tell me if I'm wrong, I'm going to put words in your mouth, that when you get criticised or you get bombs chucked at you or, or Asher does or, or Craig Cheney, you feel like, who the bloody hell are you? Shown us. You know, you don't know where we come from. Why you, you know, we're, we're, we're people from the other side of the tracks. We're trying to change stuff in the seat. We're trying to be that. It feels that there's a frustration from that. Would that be fair? So there's a number of things that go on, Neil. I say you have to be very careful about talking about the establishment. Yeah, it's, I know. Just, I, 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 I'm doing inverted commas, political establishment. Right. Okay? Right, we can't yeah. see that because yeah. you're on audio. <laughs> I just said, I just said I'm doing speech whilst with my hands. The British establishment, the British establishment benefits without even being in elected office. That's the truth of it, right? Yeah. It's a combination of class and race and inherited wealth, right? Yeah. Status. They, they, they don't need to get elected to, to, to lead. One of my points is that people from backgrounds like mine, we need politics to work for us. Yep. Right? Because the underlying trends of the economy, our culture, the inherited opportunities that come because your aunt and uncle works at the in the law firm or the finance firm and just knows how to get you the work experience or can get the internship. We don't got access to that. So we need a political system to work for us. You know, and actually getting elected is one of the most available sources to being able to influence the world that there yeah. is. Because we're sure. not going to become chair of the board of yeah. a FTSE 100 company, are we, right? Yeah. And you are, can. you know, you are, it's a, it's an important milestone for politics and it's certainly an important milestone for Bristol. You are Europe's first elected black mayor, which shouldn't be underestimated at all. You know, I, I, I know you, we've had conversations, lots of conversations in the past, and I know you can be direct in your communication. Lib Dem candidate Caroline Gooch basically said the mayoral role attracts big egos, egoists. So are, are you an egoist? Well, and what, what evidence did, I mean, what was the argument about that? Well, but it was just a statement. She, I think she was on Points West and she said that she feels that the, the mayoral role attracts kind of alpha males, egoists. And I did ask her herself whether she was a, she felt she had that herself. And she said, I think the nature of the role, mayor, which is slightly different than councillor and slightly different than MP, and you, and you know, you have to have broad shoulders. You have to kind of be somebody who's prepared to, to, to give and take stuff, attracts egoists. That was the context. So, so are you an egoist? Well, I don't think so. But I mean, that's, I mean, I don't know what to say unless you're going to actually, you know, put a coherent argument together to build up to that. Uh, to well, that did, explain what she really, said. Oh, you mean Caroline yeah, herself? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. It's a charge without an argument, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, yeah. Well, you can, you can answer it. You can still say whether you think you are or not, couldn't you? Well, I don't, well, I don't think so. And I don't think that's the way people experience me in the city over the last uh, 20 years. She wants to get rid of the position, obviously. And... There has been, you know, kind of a, a fallout for yourself with a number of opposition councillors and parties, including some Labour councillors, accusing you of shutting down debate, not letting them have their say, even bullying. Are you a bully? No, I, I'm not. I'm not a bully. That's Neil. So let's have a look at let's have a look at the argument then. Right. Yeah. So they don't like the mayoral model. So the question is, what's on offer? What what's on offer? Um. So the mayoral model means that the political leader of the city is directly elected by who? I'm not going to do this because you asked me questions. I told you that already. You have to ask my, I know, I know right, you right. do this, right? We'll do, we'll you're do not, it you, time. You're I'll, not a I'll journalist. You. you can interview me on, on, on your um, podcast that you've got, yeah? I no, think I it's just, just just push back. You know, I, I'll give you an opportunity to respond to things. Like you've had people like Joe yeah. Sargent, Nicola Biden. You've had some journalists say it. I've had conversations with you about this before. You know, is this is this people being sort of snowflakes and sensitive? Is this a way of just sort of putting a charge back at you? Where is this coming from, this whole bullying thing? You know, you're a bully. There's, people, they've said this has been said. No, but again, when if someone comes and says it, it's worth just cross-referencing with other people in the city. We, you know, pulling, pulling the city together in a way that, that we have since I've been elected as mayor would not be possible if we... Uh, in terms of opening up decision-making to our city partners if we approached it in a way that wasn't okay. The, the youth work I've been involved in over the years, the city leadership programme, I work in the voluntary sector. You know, I've got enough of a track record in the city. It's not too hard to go out and ask people if they think that this is the truth. Some of that is political gaming. Some of it is people who are sensitive when they're asked a question back. And, and what does happen if I'm asked a silly question, I will sometimes ask people why they've asked a silly question. And they, that's a journalist in you, isn't it? Yeah. But, you know, yeah. you know that's, I think that's, that's okay. I actually, dare I say, the, the unwillingness to take questions now is one of the problems with our political debate. It, it, becomes, mm. it becomes like a Turkish shoot conversation rather than a genuine conversation. But if we go back to the, the point we made, 
the, the, one of the reasons we're having a directly elected mayor is so that the people of the city can actually elect the political leader yeah. right, for a period of time. Yeah. What the Liberal Democrat is, is actually asking for is to go to a leader model. So the question is, and I'll answer it because I know you don't want to answer it, <laughs> yeah. the political leader in a leader model, how are they chosen? Well, the councillors choose them, right? So the councillors with the members of the largest party go into a room, mm-hmm. right? There might be 30, 34 of them in a room and they vote for who their leader is going to be. So 18 people say, choose their leader of that group. Then that group has its negotiations with the other councillors and then they come to an agreement and go to full council, and the 70 councillors at full council then have a vote, and if they agree, that person becomes the leader. So where are the people of Bristol in, the, in that process of choosing the political leader of the city? It's clearly divided opinion, hasn't it? I think that, you know, if we talk about the one city model which fits kind of parallel to whether that's true or not, what is a fact is there are a number of councils across all parties, including your own, that feel that it is a sort of parallel council, handpicked, only accountable to you. How do you respond to that? Is, is that true? On the other hand, there are people in the city, business people, you know, you've just won an Urban Leadership Award for this, what they see as an innovative new model of doing local democracy. So what, what is the truth to this? But no, this, this is one of the challenges is that, I, uh, you know, people need to be questioned on, on their challenges. So you've jumped from one topic to other. So the first one was on, and I think that was a really important question is, yeah. do the people of Bristol get the chance to elect, directly elect their political leader? Or does it happen within the internal machinations of the council chamber? Yeah. Why, why don't we just do a wave of council elections and just vote for a mayor then? What, and have no councillors? Well, just have a mayor. I mean, they would probably say, you know, there have been incidences when you have overridden the, you know, obviously the arena is the obvious one, overridden the majority of council vote and had a mayor. So it's a genuine question. I don't know. They have it, you know, in, in states. You wouldn't want to get rid could. of your... You Why not? You want, no, we're not, we're not saying you get rid of the councillors. The councillors have an absolutely vital role in the city. And, and I think they feel, many of them feel that you don't see that or give them the the voice to... To, to, to be that, that the influence, they feel slightly sort of shut out. That... But, but again, you know, if, 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 the, if the, there has to be a questioning of why people say some things with, with a knowledge of what's going on so that there, there's some pushback. Otherwise, everyone, what happens in political journalism is people just come to me and say, this person says that, this person says that. What do you say, Marvin? When actually... Yeah. The, well, that, I'm just relaying their experience. No, just, yeah, no, I'm finished. No, I'm finished. I'm relaying their experience. There's a number of councillors I've interviewed, you know, throughout the series of Bristol Unpacked. All the mayoral candidates are saying the same thing. It could well not be true. I don't know. I'm just asking you your response to their experience, their lived experience. They feel as if they are being shut out from decision making. The counter view to that is obviously that, you know, I think you've said yourself that the, the council is in danger of being left behind by Bristol or something. So, you know, are, are they just being obstructive to progress or are they being bypassed? No, you, you, there's lots of points you're raising here that, that you need, I need a bit more space to expand I, me, me answer. So I think councillors are, are critical at, in, in local politics. They are there to represent a ward and to, to, to represent their ward in the in the council and advocate for them and make sure uh, that people are getting the service they need uh, from uh, the council. But I would say it goes further than that and something that hasn't always been done. They're there to represent the ward within the city as well and not just within the council to do community organising, leadership. Now, if we get onto the city office, um, again, the, the council in and of itself, has been a democratically broken organisation in the city for a long time. I've not just been in the city since I got elected. I grew up in the city. I know lots of communities. I worked in the voluntary sector and uh, in, in, in Bristol for many years with the BDA, and then I worked with commissioning voluntary sector organisations. The, the, the council was not an organisation we looked to for solutions, and neither were the councillors. So what we've done with the city office is said, OK, we've got all these organisations in the city shaping life, ourselves, the health service, voluntary community sector, the police, business, trade unions, schools. How do we begin to actually get those organisations to work together in a much more coherent way? And what we've done is they've come together to write a one city plan. Any councillor who comes up with with something good they want to do, will back them to do it. And I, I went around to visit all of the political groups when I was first elected 
And I said, look, what do you want to get done? What's your vision that you want to deliver? And I got things like, well, signage on bus stops. Well, okay, we can support you in that, but we've got some major challenges. We're going through Brexit. We've got economic downturn, austerity, lingering child poverty, social immobility. Now I'm finding that actually we're working with our city partners. There is much more tune in to having those conversations than we do in the, the council chamber. So, you know, we'll invest in the, in, you know, in the, in the councillors, but the councillors in turn need to invest in the city by actually coming up with real visionary stuff they want to deliver. So they're just playing politics a lot of the time. Not everyone. There are, there are some councillors who are ferociously from all parties. I think about Matt Belias is one, for example, John Galandre, who would have very different political, you know, opinions to me, but who I recognise as being really good advocates of, of their communities. So why did you get rid of a rainbow cabinet then? The first party to leave was the Liberal Democrats. And I said to the cabinet member of the time that you're going to have to talk to your leader because we've given you genuine power within the, within the cabinet, right? But he keeps on having like cheap digs. And, and it doesn't mean that having a cross-party cabinet means you can't criticise across party lines, but something in the quality of your working relationship needs to change. And I said, I said, there's only so long I can hold my hand out to you where you keep chewing on my fingers. And, and that extended to the, the other parties as well. And in fact, there was, I won't mention the party because I don't want to jump it up, but there was an occasion when, when one of the parties in full council made a big deal of criticising an area of policy for which they actually held the cabinet brief. And that cabinet member came and apologised to me and was very, very embarrassed because it was all politicking. You know, we're called to be gracious, but we're not called to be fools. And in the end, I had to say, you know, this is, you know, this isn't working. You know, we've we've given out real power. We've given out a position in the cabinet. And, it, 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 you know, it, I don't think I don't think the spirit of that is is really being honoured. And so, you know, it's not a journey we can continue on. So you've now sort of gone in a slightly different direction. So obviously, you know, inclusivity and diversity is is key and central to your whole sort of leadership and, and what you're about. But obviously with, with no rainbow cabinet, is there, is there enough diversity of thought around you? Well, of course we've got, you know, it's not, it's not political parties that give you diversity of thought, is it? It's, it's, it's the way people experience the world. So as I've said, you know, we've got the most inclusive, diverse political leadership the city's ever seen. Just jump in there if I can. Hope you're enjoying this chat. Just want to let you know about the Bristol Cable and about all the episodes. We've been interviewing all the Bristol mayoral candidates through the campaign, but also we've got loads and loads of episodes from a range of topics and interesting people in the city. If you want to check that out, then you can go to the Bristol Cable website, put Bristol Unpacked in a search engine. But also, this is available on Podcaster, so it's on Apple Podcasts, it's on Spotify, it's on Acast. And if you subscribe, then you can get all the old episodes and any future ones will, will pop, into your, uh, pop into your podcaster. On another note, if you want to become a member of the Bristol Cable, we are a cooperative with 2,700-odd members. Chuck some money in every month, then you can shape the direction of the Bristol Cable. Okay, back to the chat. Let, let's talk a bit about policies, if that's okay. I want to ask you so three questions, as you know, come from the other candidates because you, you obviously asked your own as well so first one is from sandy hall riven how can you square the statement we are proud to achieve all our election pledges on your poster with 262 affordable homes being built in 2020 when you pledged 800 a year well that's a misunderstanding we said we get to 800 a year by uh, by the end of our term and we said we'd be out of 2,000. Um, but we're proud because we've built 9,000 homes for people when we've trebled the rate of affordable house building. And it's a case of believe in your eyes. People will play with the numbers and all that, and that's fine. But but looking around the city, I think most people will recognise that there's never been so many cranes on Bristol's horizon. There's never been so much construction. It, it's technically less than the two previous regimes on affordable homes. Those Liberal Democrats in two thousand and eight, two thousand and twelve. Yeah, but what share of that was fifty six affordable, two thousand and sixty two. So they've got more homes and more affordable homes. You got to break that down, Neil. What share of that was um, purpose built student accommodation? We're not doing this. I told you that already. All right. Okay. okay. So no, we've you know, we so look at look at the things that have happened in the face of opposition. By the way, is if you track back the story, so Hengrove Park, that's been you know identified for housing for decades now. Right, we've come in. It's actually happening. Fourteen hundred homes 
over 30 to 40% affordable in, in that site. You know, these, these things weren't happening before. We got award-winning schemes, Bonington Walk coming through, Romney Harris, we got our own housing company, you know, Castle View coming up, that scheme we've built with Homes England. So, you know, I get, I get it because we've put some incredibly aspirational targets on housing on the table. We focus minds. By the way, it's important to recognize this. We redirected the firepower within our regeneration team away from building this, uh, an arena on Temple Island. Uh, yeah, let's get well, let's get on to that because that's that's like finished Caroline. Like, yeah, um, but only because we're pushed the time. But the, the, the answers uh, are quite long. Uh, uh, I'm going to go to Caroline's question, which is connected okay. to that. Caroline Gooch from Lib Dems. When you overall the council on location for the arena brackets, this is even though it would cost 200 million in infrastructure requirements and not save anything. Did you take into account access to cultural and events for people in South Bristol that might have a value you can't measure in money? Can I just can I just ask she, what was the statement that it would cost two hundred million? She's put in brackets, yeah. Even though it would cost two hundred million in infrastructure requirements and not save anything. Well, I don't. I well, I mean, okay. all right. We'll ignore that. We'll ignore that. Then just go to so when you overall the council on location for the arena. Did you take into account access for cultural events for people in South Bristol might have a value you can't measure in money? Yeah. Well, of course, uh, you know, of course. But you, you've we always thinking about inclusion. That's been the you know, the, the real focus of what we've done and, and our offer, you know, our drive on culture, whether it be St. George's, Old Vic, uh, Bristol Beacon, bringing Channel 4 to Bristol, bringing a youth zone to, to South Bristol has been actually critical. But the arena is an important one it's because I think what, what, the op- what the criticism on the arena relies on is that we keep this debate at a Twitter level, right? One line. The arena cost £160 million plus to build. We would only get that money by borrowing it. Right. The point I made, irrespective of what the council has said and and ask people if they still think it'd be a good idea. The point I made was that the risk involved in that arena was too high. If at any point the arena operator said we can't make this arena stack up. Right. Um, We would be in a very bad position. They would come back, renegotiate the contract and then we would end up with debt repayments with no income on a big building in the middle of the city. In fact, if we had built the arena at a cost of 160 plus million pounds, we'd be trying to open it in the middle of a pandemic. I mean, I'm not going to ask you a question, Neil, but I just say the rhetorical question is, what would be the financial consequences for the city right now if we'd have borrowed that money to build an arena and it wasn't open now? How much more would it have been than how much extra is for the Bristol Beacon? Well, we'd have been 160... Because that's that's like an extra... But Neil, you're throwing top, something in that is well, that, that's, that's, well, no, because it's still money. It's taxpayers' money. That's, okay. that's now 107 million in extra. It was 48.8 million, and now that's obviously sort of doubled. So that money, presumably, I understand that it's to do with the beams and stuff like that. But that money presumably could could be sort of redirected into. But you, but you need to understand the nature of the the Bristol Beacon. It's a different. It's a wholly different project. The the arena is built from scratch, right? So we know, and actually the arena, as opposed to the mixed-use development, the mixed-use development on Temple Island delivers three times the number of jobs over 25 years, three times the gross value added, and about uh, and, and about twice, two to three times the uh, business rates. But somebody in Hartcliffe that wants to go to watch, you know, Coldplay or Bruce Springsteen, that ain't going to mean anything to them, is it? Do you think, do you think Coldplay would play at a 10,000-seater arena in the middle of the city? I don't know, they might do. You might stand, might do a solo gig. I don't know. A, a big act. Well, any act, well, any act then. Neil, yeah. but, you, but if we're going to use these examples, they have to be real examples, right? It's because otherwise you make a case that isn't there. Um, so The idols, the idols then, but they, they would probably would, wouldn't they? Maybe so. Okay. So first off, I, I think the argument that you can sustain an arena on, on a single city's population doesn't stand up. An arena stands up because it is a regional venue and attracts people from the region because if a ticket is you know under quid how many times are you going to go a year with your with your family so it has to be regionally accessible um but the financial but we'll get a culture is not just about events culture is do you have a job right do you have disposable income what's going on in your household if we get three times the gross value added and three times the number of jobs and more business rates, then we can do stuff in the city that benefits the whole of the city. To yeah. sacrifice that for for gigs that I would question whether they'd be sustainable. And by the way, we, we were told 
to, to be viable, arenas need to be approaching about 20,000 seaters now because it's a very hard place to make money. So what if, if this is all true, I, I want to move on to the next question of Alison now. If that, that's all true, and you seem very confident in your view on this, why is there so many people that have the opposite opinion? They're all wrong, all of them. You're right and all of them are wrong. There must be some validity to their view a little bit. Neil, I'm not, what you're, you're kind of setting up a dynamic, I'm right, they're wrong. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is that too often our debates in a city are one or two sentences, or you for it or against it. What I'm saying is, let's take a step back and consider all the factors at play, right? Okay, all right, got it. Here's, so let's here's, 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 here's another okay. one. I need to move on, on. I need to move on to, to um, no, Alistair's question. Just, you, well, you, you've, no, I mean, you've answered it. We know, we know, we know it's, it's the nuance that no, people can I just, can I just Can I just offer a little bit of a challenge, Neil? And this is a very gentle Go one, okay? This is the, if we open up an issue that, you know, that, that has lots of aspects to it and then we close it down after two out of five factors, then, then it leaves it undeveloped. So would yeah, you... Yeah, but it's also a way of just talking and talking and talking, I, isn't okay. it? Philly, Philly want... an interview. I don't, I don't, you're, you're, in effect, okay. I think there's the value of, no, 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 I think the value of what, what that point you're making about simplifying of debate, you have made that several times in this interview. I understand it. I get it. And the people are maybe yeah. we're as a, as a media, we're simplifying something that needs to be more complex and have more time to it. I get that. I just need to move on to, to, to Alistair's question. How would you describe your own uh, deeply held political philosophy, more Corbyn momentum or Blairite Starmer? Well, I don't, I don't categorise myself under anyone's uh, banner. I don't know what was... I mean, I am me. I, I grew up in the city with my mum and my sister, with seven brothers and sisters, well, by my dad, having different people. We sometimes struggled to pay the bills and... I went to school. I didn't have a, I wouldn't say I was happy as a child, but I, I managed to uh, escape. I had some fantastic support on the way. I had a fair amount of adversity on the way. And therein, therein comes my, my politics. Is there nobody in the Labour Party that's influenced you that you see as a, I don't know, someone you look up to? I mean, I, I, no, I don't. <laughs> no. No one. <laughs> really? Not well, you. I don't okay. look up to people. I'm a grown. All right. Influenced by, you know, if, if I'm, you know, I think about my football, I'm like, oh, I like so and so player. And no. that's why I like Man United. So there must be somebody in the Labour Party. Yeah. I, I know you talk a lot was... about American politics. Obviously, people in American politics. I'm, just, yeah, I'm interested in that in the Labour bit. Is there somebody in the Labour movement that you sort of think, ah, that's my man kind of thing? Yeah. I've, I've had an appreciation for people from all wings, but this is a, you know, it's a trick question. Look. And I think I have more political attitude than I have political ideology. My attitude is this, you know, this really uh, get things done. I have admired people actually over the last few years. I've grown in my much more in my appreciation of uh, people like um, Nick Forbes, who's the yeah. leader of Newcastle, yeah. uh, Richard Lees, who's cracked on and got good stuff done up in Manchester. Yeah. And I think that's where my my antennae has okay. gone. Burnham, Andy Burnham? Yeah, Andy Burnham's up in... Andy Burner's up in Manchester now and really cracking on and getting stuff done. But I don't, I don't sit around, you know, hugging a picture at late at night. <laughs> okay. Like this right. Yeah. Okay, no, I, I've, you know, my, yeah. my influences really are about the world in which I grew up. Sure. You know, and what I found in the Labour Party um, is not a perfect party. Yeah. It, it's what I was looking for is, and, and it's an imperfect party, just like they all are, yeah. a group of people who, who are minded like me, to, to to tackle poverty and inequality, to bring yeah. hope to people's lives and to be ambitious. And you made a great point in the last mayoral election against George. You made a great point. Someone said about the Labour Party. I think you said something along the lines of, if it wasn't for the Labour Party, I wouldn't be sat here now. I think you then went to say, you need to be rich to stand as an independent and win. Yeah, you've got, you got, you got to spend your money on your leaf or, you, or you've got to have a rich network. The idea of someone running on their own resources to get elected is just... Yeah, beyond most people's ability to believe. Without the trade unions and without Labour Party, I, I yeah. could never be a candidate. Right, I've got to move on to some of the cable readers and listeners' uh, questions about policy. Uh, this is framed around transport, environment and housing. Uh, first one, if you can be a bit snappy in these, I, and I, won't, I promise I won't interrupt you, but don't don't like go on too long just because sort of, we've only got about 10, 15 minutes left. Um, why are you wedded to the underground? Is it achievable? And do you feel that people probably want to know a little bit more how things can change in the here and now? So it is achievable. It's a real piece of work going on right now. Both the finance and the engineering has been confirmed, but we've got to go through the options with DFT. Why? Uh, because we need a chapter change in the public transport offering we make to Bristol to give people a viable alternative to private cars. 
Um, we should have done it years ago. The city's going to grow by about 100,000 people or so over the next 25 years, right? We can't all have cars and, you know, we've got to give people connectivity uh, in and around the city, particularly some of our out-of-town estates as well. And the third, the third element of that question, Neil? The third element of the question was? Uh, there was um, about the here and now. Oh, yeah, we're doing it here and now. We've got the bus deal. We've got bus prioritisation. We've put a bus gate on Bristol Bridge. Um, um, Pedestrianise the old city. Baldwin Street's got a bus gate on it as well. The bus deal um, puts us on track to having 100% biogas buses and doubling the frequency of services, you know, on our key routes. So the, bus, the, the work we're doing on public transport is happening right now. We're opening up new train stations, uh, Ring of Park and Rides, finishing the metro bus and put in uh, much more active travel. We put cycle lanes in around invested in 75 miles of segregated cycle lanes. So the hearing is being done now, but we've got to plan for the future. One of the reasons we have a climate crisis now is because no one planned for the future. Second question on the environment. Are you confident in hitting your 2030 net zero target? I think it's massively challenging, but we've got to have that target. So I'm, I'm confident we're going to do everything possible to meet that target. But there are, you know, but, but it, it will focus minds. One of the things we're going to, we need to do, which I'm putting in my op-ed, is we need government to cut to front load investment in green infrastructure to enable cities to to, to deliver. Um, so yeah. I'm confident we're doing everything we can to uh, get there, but we know it is a massively challenging target. But it's the right one to have. Do you think that the Greens have sort of shifted the Overton window nationally, not just locally, for Labour to be a bit more focused on climate and focused on net zero targets and stuff? Do you feel as if they've sort of pushed that window a bit? No, I think they have a brand for it. But look, I worked for an aid agency called Tier Fund uh, back in the day. We were working on environment uh, back in the late 90s, well, and before that, um, into the 2000s, when I worked on a Jubilee 2000 debt campaign. For me, environmental justice cannot be separated from racial justice because the people who get hit first and hardest by environmental destruction look like me and my dad or come from poorer backgrounds like I came from. So it, it's always been an issue. Our point has been that for too long, the environmental discussion has has taken place without any real diversity and inclusion in its leadership and and, and actually absent of a real uh, coherent race and class analysis. I think uh, you called the, the Metro Mayor candidate the uh, race and class, uh, um, I can't remember what the word is, that kind of like, you know, somebody who's just completely unclued up about. Do you still, is that your critique of the Greens in general? Do you still feel they are a bit? Um, I'm not getting into no. critique of the Greens. No, I'm just, yeah. in, in general, I, I just think, if you're going to... The movement itself is, is, is predominantly been quite white middle class, yeah, isn't the, it? The Greens and the environment are not the same thing. You can be an environmentalist and not be... Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, across the whole environmental kind of, you know, from Dixon's yeah. Rebellion to the Green Party to that whole thing, you know, it's a it's something that's probably not been as diverse as it as it perhaps it could have been. Right, I'm going to move on to the next one. Housing. Uh, we've got 27,000 council tenants in the city. The council housing freeze got some criticism from a couple of councillors Carrie Bells who is a council tenant all her life she called it a false economy and Nicola Bowden-Jones said this has nothing to do with coronavirus or helping people on low incomes basically this is in effect a council house freeze on rents which some people are suggesting will have an impact upon how revenue generated to maintain and build new social housing how do you respond to that I mean our our consideration is that we know that um uh Rent arrears has been increasing, right? So we know that people are struggling to pay their rent. We also know that there's a very strong uh, move in the city asking for rent controls. And in that sense, we need to set an example. So while people are facing financial challenges and we're asking landlords to uh, temper their own uh, rent increases as they could be pushing through, that we need to, you know, we need to meet those needs and to set that example. So um, in terms of the uh, you know, our, our future borrowing to build homes. You know, we've made the calculation and we don't think this is going to impact. There are so many other factors that come into play that will determine our ability to build homes in our finance and in land availability as well, that this is this is just a one-year freeze. So, so if I'm right in understanding, the inference here is that they are suggesting that this is a sort of bit of a, an electioneering thing, a gimme to people that live in councillors that will think... Well, I guess so. But, you know, when we were feeding hungry kids, was that trying to... Buy, you know, we've got a track record on this. When we were tackling period poverty, when we did the work around the domestic violence and abuse or the kids in the care system or stop charging council tax to care leavers. These are not electioneering things. This is, this is exactly in line with what we've been doing for the last five years, which is about being, you know, ferociously ambitious for the city, but by trying to make sure that we, 
support people to to share in that ambition. Uh, Bristol protests. Mark Runacre on BCFM. That's Superintendent Mark Runacres of Avon and Somerset Police. Said that you, this is a direct quote, decided collectively that it would be necessary to move people along from College Green, which was on the Tuesday in March. Is it the mayor's role to discuss police tactics? No, it's not. And and that didn't, that you, people quote, but that, that's not what happened. What we talked about was my conversation with the police was, because it's their responsibility. All tactics is police Police matter. What I talked to Mark about and the police was that one is we all safeguard people's right to protest, right? And we want to do, and that's the line, that's the, the balance, particularly in the face of COVID. We've walked as a city over the last particularly year. Um, now, if they are going to move people on at some point, what I wanted them to make sure was one is they've given people ample warning that it's going to happen. So you don't just turn up and say, right, time to go. you got one minute. You've got to talk to people well ahead of time. So trying to mitigate the potential of conflict. Um, and secondly, to make sure they're talking to people about the level of COVID risk. So I asked the police to make sure they were on top of the level of risk that our public health team would say that was being incurred by the gathering. So that one is that factors into their sense of urgency or non-urgency of when they whether they need to move people on. If the COVID risk is seen as very small, then obviously they'll feel less pressure to disperse the crowd. So I want them to be aware of the public health risk and I want them to communicate that level of public health risk to the people participating to try and make it as conversational and predictable as possible. Sure. Okay. Uh, You also said, I highly suspect that there are a number of people from outside the city, uh, serial demo attenders. What evidence do, do you have to support that? Well, one of the guys arrested was from Plymouth. Another guy, another guy was arrested was was over from the southeast. So you felt? I mean, that's two. Yeah. That well, the- I mean, I mean that was evidence, right? There was <laughs> there were yeah. there were two were there, and there were more there. I, I've got the list in front of me, Neil. But yeah, uh, di- direct out of the blocks. I mean, there were local people where, but um, you know, that's just that's just the way it was. There were people from from outside. And Bristol, Bristol becomes a, a place where people come to. For, for demonstrations, it's fine. And we have to make the distinction here between demonstrations and smashing windows and smashing up the city. Demonstrations is, uh, you know, are fine. They're part of who we are. Sure. And they've been key to our political progress over the years. Um, but smashing up, smashing up the city at this time, what is it will not help us defeat the police and crime bill, but also it's, it's not okay. Politically literate, I think you called it. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, I did, and yeah. st- uh, strategically inept on the basis that if 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 the aim is to defeat the police and crime bill, how is smashing windows uh, going to help that? Particularly when the way you defeat it is in the Commons, conservatives have majority, and you've got to convince conservative MPs to vote against the whip. And yeah. the point is, I think what what happened on a night of violence is there's a big bag of of case studies for the advocates of the police crime bill to take into the commons as evidence of the need for law and order. It was a developing story, wasn't it, that there were other protests throughout the week. You know, yes, on the on the first night, the police station was being smashed up, vans were being set on fire. We then had a number of incidents with police hitting people with shields, a woman being knocked out, punched in the face. We had journalists being attacked. The Liberal Democrats and Greens are, are you going to call for a public inquiry into the protests and policing? I think you do a public inquiry if you think that the internal disciplinary processes, review and disciplinary processes don't work. Uh, we need to we need the police to go through their internal processes when they review the body worn camera uh, footage and ask officers to account for decisions they made at particular points in time, which is uh, which is what they'll be doing. If the results of that are unsatisfactory, then I think you then you can ask for your for your public inquiry. On, on outsiders coming in to the city or kind of the, uh, I guess, the sort of serial demo attenders, when the Colson statue was taken down and the police stood back, do you think that sent a message to people that are sympathetic to protesting that Bristol was fair game to come into, as you said, from, you know, from the from the region and beyond, where actually we come into Bristol, we can do what we want? No, I don't. But what I would say is, again, my point on the political literacy, you need to you need to understand the context in which action is taken, uh, because Bristol was in the crosshairs of the Home Secretary from that point onwards. Yeah, for sure. Uh, what's happened is advocates of the police and crime bill have been saying, look, because the police weren't going in with batons and shields at the Colston, you set the stage 
for the smash windows at this end. So that's the evidence that they've been citing. I've had it posted that's on... That's their narrative, isn't it? The, the, that's the their narrative. Government. And the point is, if you're in a jiu-jitsu fight and someone wants to twist your arm off, don't give him your arm. You know, you've got to think about how you position position yourself. And that's my point about the lack of strategy yeah. um, thinking of the action uh, that was taken. But no, I don't. I defended the the, uh, the police at the time yeah. and so I said it was um, emotionally literate uh, and without ego because all we had that day was a piece of criminal damage. It was a very spectacular piece of criminal damage, but it was criminal damage. No big smash windows, no riots and, and the fighting that they had in London. Yeah. Uh, I thought that that policing needed to be defended and it was attacked by our government. Did anyone from the Merchant Ventures stop you from taking the statue down? No. No? No. Because obviously that was a big, big moment, wasn't it? That people, lots of questions, and I, and I won't ask you, I know you've answered it a hundred times as to why the statue didn't come down in your tenureship. And you respond saying, well, hang on a minute, what about the hundred odd years of other leadership in the city that also didn't? I, I, so, I, so I ask you slightly differently. Do you, do you wish on reflection that you had taking it down now? I've just come in as the first black mayor of a major European city. Yeah. If I took the statue down, it's all I would have talked about for five years. There were, there were other things I needed to get on with for the sake of delivering equality, hope, and tackling racism in the city. Yeah. So the statue in and of itself is important, has huge symbolic value in Bristol, but it doesn't determine our educational chances, our life chances, whether our kids are going to be fed, the wealth disparity it doesn't drive social mobility. So one is, no, I think we had the right priorities. Um, secondly, remember, something else has happened in the last few years that didn't happen with a big confrontation, but it's very symbolic. Changing of the name of the Coston Hall. Yeah. And we agreed that quite early at the traps. They'd agreed that. Now, that was a piece of work that we were doing. We we're actually focusing on the Colston Hall name change, and that had come through. So we didn't just go for a blitz on everything Colston's gets changed. Colston Hall, that's where we focus. Yeah. That, that's significant. No one asked me about the Colston Hall around the world. What they want to do is tell the story about a statue being pulled down and thrown in the harbour. Yeah. But that is. You were interviewed, weren't you? All over. I mean, that's the one thing I would say about Bristol in your tenureship is that I don't think any any time in my lifetime, regardless of whether it was symbolic, and I, you know, and I and I take that point. I think you're right. Is that actually this was a a global story? You, you know, the focus of not just the national, the global media in the city. You were interviewed in Washington Post, New York Times, Sky News, Channel Four, Radio Four, but I didn't hear you mention the Merchant Ventures very often in in interviews. Why was that? I don't kind of recognise the question, really. I, I oh, because they of... played a big role in stopping the statue coming down with the plaque, didn't they? There was obviously the alternative plaque that was put into fault. You know, obviously Colson himself was a merchant venture. Merchant ventures still hold quite a lot of sway, you know, on boards. You know, there's some on the One City boards, for example, that there are, you know, they are they have big slush funds that fund community organisations. But I, I, I was surprised, having listened to some interviews, why you didn't, because surely it's bound in the context of who and what the merchant ventures are in relation to Colston. I mean, I don't know at what point you would have expected um, them to have been mentioned uh, within that. I mean, well, nobody asked you because they don't know about it, do they? The national media don't know the, the context of Bristol with that, with the the influence that that they have had in the city for a number of years. Yeah, but Neil, that's. I mean, that's again, that's my point is being that you've had every opportunity to raise in in other places as well that the establishment isn't just about getting elected. The establishment is about the position you hold and all your assets and your family background and your independent school and the, the networks that you're a part of, you know, but... Which surprised me why you wouldn't mention them then, because that is what your driver I, is. Your driver is about people from the wrong side of the track, social mobility, challenging the old school tie. Aren't these people you, the foundations of the old school tie in Bristol? That's exactly what they are, isn't it? But what would you have had me say, Neil, when I'm being asked about uh, law and order and policing tactics... Um, and social policy. What at what point do I? What what did you want me to say about the merchant ventures? Well, you could have spoken about the plaque, and and, and when people ask you why didn't you take it down, and then obviously you know you could have. You the could plaque have, wasn't about taking it down. No, the, the plaque pl- was, but but the plaque was also part of that process that kind of led to the point where it came down. You don't want to sort of labour this, but I just I was just interested to know why that you know the merchant ventures are here in the city. There is you know I think it, it's now the lid has lifted a bit more. When I spoke, interviewed Sandy the green candidate, even he sort of acknowledged that, you know, Creative Youth Network had a number of 
Merchant Ventures on their board. His organization had, had received funding from them. And I asked him, did he regret it? And he felt he didn't see, he said he didn't, but he, he does feel that now at least, you know, this will open the conversation a bit more. But I think, I think that it is a big story in Bristol that is connected to Colston that nobody seems to be talking about. To be honest, Neil, you're losing me a little bit in kind of like the logic of it. I mean, my, the, my point is I'm not, I'm not coming into office to be against anything. I'm for stuff, right? Yeah. What I'm for is trying to make sure that people have hope for my background. If the subtext of your questioning is that in getting elected, um, now I am in kind of some cahoots with the Merchant Ventures, then we'd have to have a wider chat about that. I, I think it's, like I said at the time to um, someone from the BBC, it'd be a little bit odd that, you know, the first black guy gets elected in Europe and suddenly he's responsible for the statue. Um, and then me as a descendant of enslaved Africans. I'm not saying you're in cahoots. That, that, that I'm saying just, that you haven't really come up and spoken about them and maybe challenged them in public. You may have privately, I don't know. I'm not saying you're in cahoots. I, I didn't get elected with an intention to go into battle with the merchant venturers. That, whatever that represents uh, for the city is part of a wider, much bigger issue of social immobility and inherited privilege and, you know, other people have joined them you know, as well now as well, but I don't spend my days, you know, defining myself in terms of the ventures. You know, I'm, I'm about, I'm saying, how do we forge a future for the city on a, you know, on a, on a world stage and the ventures are, are in our city. On and, the- you know, they have changed. You've had Marty Burgess coming in as a first black woman merchant venture. They're trying to shift and change their kind of figures. Yeah, no, you know, I accept that. I just, I just, I was just kind of interested to know why that hasn't been spoken about, um, so much can i just i'm going to change tact well, a little bit you know, um, you, about, you don't you know, leave something hanging like that because it suggests that there's a you know a subtext i mean it's just it, it just didn't come up in the interviews i didn't think yeah. it was yeah, a, yeah, yeah, okay. you know, well, the statue I, the yeah. law and order the yeah. trying to make sure we have real social policy for change that's, sure. that's basically what it's been about you know okay fair <laughs> enough fair enough point taken uh your future i'm interested to know if you win beyond being bristol mayor do you want to run as an MP at some point? I don't know, um, to be honest. My wife doesn't want me to. If, <laughs> okay, right. We've talk, we talked about these things because yeah. people ask me, and once you start being asked, you, you've got to talk about it. Sure. Um, I don't have a life plan. I didn't have a life plan to become mayor of Bristol. See, there was no mayor. Yeah. You know, my point has been I want to do good things, you know, whether it would be, you know, when I was working at BDA on with the voluntary sector, whether it be in the health service on mental health, mm-hmm. whether it's the city leadership program, I'd like to build that up um, some more. We've done amazing stuff with young people, you know, from disadvantaged background. Um, being being a politician is just another avenue to express yeah. uh, a deeper desire. There is no plan to become an MP. I actually think that city leadership is the most exciting place in politics at the moment. Andy Burnham has said the same, actually. Manchester, there's real stuff that's happening. Like I said, I, I meet people that have moved into homes we've built. That's yeah. real. Yeah. You know, when you see biogas buses going down the street, that is real. Yeah. You know, when when I go to the feeding programmes, and I was over at Noel West playing on the playing fields, you know, the other week with, with young kids, and they were playing football. We had a little run around. I got a goal. Uh, got a penalty. Yeah, I, did, I saw that. I saw it on, on <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, I couldn't. I couldn't get a yeah. golden open play. I couldn't buy one. <laughs> and then they had lunch, and that was real. Yeah. And you know what is lovely? One one little lad came up to me and said, "Mayor of Bristol's in the West." <laughs> couldn't believe it. You know? Do you know what yeah, people don't right. see that? Right? People don't. I think uh, I've seen you in those environments. You know, and I can sniff bullshit, and I can see that you're somebody that's very genuine and very open very kind of I don't know you seem happy around community people and young people does it almost feel more do you feel more comfortable and happy in uh, with those kind of people than you do sometimes with politicians where it is the sort of gladiatorial arena do you have to put on a different cloak or a different kind of I don't know shield at least when you step into that I think I'd struggle with it personally well first off be careful about the word politicians it's a lot of different people so there are people I feel immensely comfortable with yeah like Cheney, you know, is one of 13 kids, grew up in poverty. I feel comfortable with Craig. Yeah. Um, Helen Godwin, you know, working class background as well. You know, so they, they, I got no problem uh, mixing with people who I think are being genuine. Yeah. What I love about being in, in our communities is it's people like me. You know, when, when the kids are there and their trainers are falling apart and they, they ain't got much to eat, I was that kid, you know, and, and I love it. So, yeah, I do feel more comfortable in communities like Noel West, communities like Lawrence Weston and, 
like, so where I feel people like me that in, in the political world yeah. where I think it's, you know, gaming and ping pong and yeah. sometimes it's a nonsense. I, I, you know, you have to be more wary because you have to be wise. You know, yeah. you, what do they say? Be wise as serpents and listen as doves. And so you have to be a little bit more careful because it's not a place where people are acting with, with um, authenticity. Sure. And you, you just gave a quote then. Do you, I mean, obviously your, your faith is important to you. Does it feel like this is your calling? Do, do you feel that the, the role itself is a sort of predestined destiny thing for you? God, you're opening up a whole bag of theology there. <laughs> well, no, I don't. Yeah, I, you I, can't do that I, no, yeah. all right. Okay, okay. All right, fair enough. Look, what I think, what I think I have, a, maybe it's the best thing, I have a responsibility. Yeah. I think one of the most profound things shared with me when I was a young person that made a big difference to me was not just my teachers, Mr. Jennings, actually. Mr. Jennings gave me a school report and said, Marvin, the world could be your oyster, but the way you're behaving, you're not going to go anywhere, right? Mm-hmm. And that was a massive kind of kick up the bum for me. Yeah. And I read it and I said, okay. I was, because I only got five C's at GCSE and I wasn't allowed to go to chemistry and, and computer studies. So my apologies to Mr. Duddleston, my old chemistry teacher. I was a nightmare. Yeah. And uh, my apologies to Mr. Mar Hewish, my computer science teacher, who told me not to come back at the end of my fourth year. Yeah. So five C's and a D. But Mr. Jennings said to me, one is, you know, your responsibility to yourself. But he also said, Marvin, you can do something for the world. And and someone believing that I had something to offer to the world made a massive impact on me. But I've always been, as since I was a kid, I've always been concerned about poverty and inequality yeah. and what I called at the time the world being unfair. So it's, I wouldn't say, you know, you, again, you open up a can of worms if you say calling, but what I would say is I certainly think it's my responsibility. Yeah. Whether it's in politics, journalism, community activism, voluntary sector, writing, whatever it is, this is my responsibility to to try and make the world fair and be a voice for the voices. When you make decisions, do you do you I know that obviously lots of boxers do if you go down to Empire Gym, there's a thing they always do before they go out for a fight in a big circle and kind of pray. Do you do you do that yourself? Well, I pray. I mean, it'd be odd if I if I said I was a Christian and believed in God. Well, and, well, yeah, for for decisions, for decisions. I mean, that would be the things. No, I don't. For I mean, decisions and stuff. Yeah. I mean, come on, you you you're taking me into troll territory. <laughs> the image of me sitting around and you know, like I don't know, like they. No, see, no, no, I'm genuinely interested. Honestly, all the right wing evangelicals saying, yeah, yeah, you know, <laughs> God, tell me what I should do. Should I put my left foot in front of my right foot? We don't do like that. Yeah. You know, I have an accumulation of experience in this planet. Yeah. You know, I've been given a brain. I've been given an opportunity for that brain to develop. I've, I've, I've been blessed and I've got some amazing people around me. So on a day-to-day basis, you, you interact with all those factors and you, and you make a decision. We're not, we're not called to, you know, as, as Christians don't have to say, God, should I, should I turn left or right today? You know? Yeah. I think that's a misinterpretation. You, you don't pray for Bristol energy, do you? Or pray for no, whatever. No. Yeah. It doesn't work like that. The no. six, yeah. I'm happy to talk about Bristol energy, but you ain't got time, but yeah, I think that, that there is that sense of, um, yeah, you know, you've been through, resi- you know, you've had adversity, you know, even resilient, demonstrate even resilience from losing and standing again. I don't think many people would necessarily have stood again. No. And that, but I guess a- faith guides you through that. Yeah. There's a line I was listening to. I was in the gym the other night, just this my own at my house, and just doing some work. And I listened to the U2 song, and it, the line really spoke to me. I'm not afraid of anything in this world because there's nothing you can throw at me that I haven't already heard. All right. So when people say, "Isn't it tough being there and all that?" Well, yeah, but I've been through worse. Right? You know, angry people shouting at me or writing mean things on social media. I've been through a lot worse. Yeah. So um, no, that, that 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 you know, it, it all comes in in context. And not only have I been through worse, but other people have been through worse. Is that why it annoys you? We're going to wrap up in a minute. But is that why it annoys you? And I kind of get where you're coming from when there are maybe some people, maybe particularly on that sort of, I guess, left of you, protest movement kind of people where there, there may have been a lack of um, what's the word, adversity in childhood. They may have had a bit of a silver spoon and then suddenly they're jumping onto sort of social causes like a weekend hobby. Does that irk you, being someone of with real lived experience of some of the issues that these people are jumping on? I, I know. I'm not going to go down that track saying annoying. I'm just going to say something that needs to be looked at. Yeah. Because there does need to be a bit of self-awareness. I think that's that's the thing. Because obviously, you know, you are the mayor at the moment, but you're restanding. Why should people vote for uh, Marvin Rees? I'm asked the should question a lot, and I never like to say should. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Really, it really is up to people to 
to have a look around and make a judgment on what they see hasn't and hasn't happened and why things have and haven't happened. But I, I think that the, the whole nature of political leadership has shifted in the city. Um, and I think the, the city's focus on actually delivering, um, you know, slogans don't feed people. Slogans don't house people. They don't tackle peer poverty or domestic violence. Um, so our, our, you know, our laser like commitment to actually getting stuff done, I think has really been important. I don't think it's something the city's had before. Um, it's easy to take for granted because we've been in for five years now, but I really think it's been a real chapter change. And my point is, I think I say to all journalists, step outside the political ping pong and actually talk to some of the organisations that are working in the city as well and find out and ask them what they think about the changing environment for Bristol. Um, so, yeah, I, I think we're proud um, and we'll see what happens. Thank you ever so much, Marvin. Most appreciated. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. So that's it from Bristol Unpacked. Thank you to Marvin Rees, the Labour candidate and current mayor. He will be defending his title and position on the 6th of May. Next week, it's the role of the independents and the smaller parties. We'll be talking to all of them in a special episode. Thanks for listening to Bristol Unpacked. I'm Neil Maggs, and a big thanks to Rosa Eaton, our audio producer, Adam Cantwell-Corn, our executive producer, and Blue Dot for our music. Make sure to subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes. And if you want to support what we're doing, join the Bristol Cable along with 2,000 others to create a new kind of media for the city.